0: This Christmas season, we have been looking at Genesis chapter 3. And each week, if you've noticed, I've tried to help you see that the songs that we sing during Christmas have Genesis 3 themes throughout them. So two weeks ago, we looked at joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let everyone rejoice because of the coming of Jesus and then we see that that coming is a reverse of the curse, that instead of curse throughout the land, blessings come as far as the curse is found. That's joy to the world. It's uh, thinking about the curse of sin and how Jesus' coming reverses that curse. That's, that's the song Joy of the World. Last week, we considered the idea that Genesis chapter 3 is not just the fall of mankind, it's the exile out of God's presence And so we see that theme all over the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. So that song that we're familiar with singing is all about exile and being out of God's presence and longing for the presence of God to come back with mankind And it's through the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that God's presence returns and exile ends. So we already sang the song this week. Did you see it in the song lyrics? Hey, Nate, could you put up on the screen verse 4 of Hark the Herald, the Angels Sing." Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Then, next part Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. That's all about Genesis 3. It's all about the curse and fall of sin. And it's about the coming of Jesus through the birth of Christ to reinstate the image of God in a way that it had been tarnished, marred, broken. So that's what we're going to consider today, this coming of Jesus, crushing the serpent's head. Let's turn with our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24. I'm going to read the entire chapter from beginning to end so we can get the sense of the whole chapter. And then I have three observations from this chapter for us to consider. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Of life. Three observations from this chapter of Scripture that I believe will be useful and helpful for us in our everyday lives. The first observation, the second observation, and the third observation are going to sound the same, but I'm going to look at them from different perspectives or angles. So, this is the phrase I want you to remember, and you will probably not have a hard time remembering it because I will be repeating it again and again. Observation number one this is not the way it was supposed to be. When you read chapter three, you should immediately be realizing this is not the way God designed it to be. It's not the, the way He ordered it, it's not the way He made it work. It, it's, the whole world has actually been flipped upside down on its head. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Let me show you what I mean. When you read chapters 1 and 2, there is an order of creation. The order begins with the great and authoritative voice of God. In the beginning, there was God. He speaks like a king speaks. And whenever he speaks, things happen. Creation exists, people are made, animals, land, dry ground rises up. He is the king, but he makes man and women in his image to be rulers, to have dominion over the earth with them. So that's why we talked several weeks ago about there is God as king, and then there are princes and there are princesses. We're not king and queen, but we're not slaves and servants. We were to be princes and princesses. And we are to have dominion over the whole earth, including the animals. So in chapters 1 and 2, he says to rule over the ground, to work the ground. Adam names the animals. You can tell that they have authority over the ground and the animals. And then you open chapter 3, verse 1. And who's the first character? A beast from the ground. An animal. And the animal is deceiving the woman. And the woman is to be the helper, not the leader. She is to be the God-given helpmate that comes underneath of her husband to bring the resources and gifts and the experience and the perspective that the man does not have because he is inadequate to live by himself. He is not good to be alone. And this woman is supposed to submissively, Christ-like submissively, follow along with her husband's lead. Do you see how the order is being reversed? You start in chapter 3, With a beast from the field. That's the bottom chain of this order of creation. Then that beast deceives the woman. And then that woman takes and gives the fruit to the man. And we don't know what sort of conversation there was, but God says, because you listened to the voice of your woman, there was some kind of conversation. You listened to her. No, no, she was to listen to your leading and guiding in the garden. You were to be the protector of anything that was evil from getting into the garden. And all of these steps are all putting God down at the bottom of the chain. It's not the way it was supposed to be. Chapter 3 is completely flipping chapters 1 and 2 on its head. Man and woman ruling over the land and the animals, now has man, woman, and animals usurping God's authority and now knowing what's good and evil for themselves. This is why John Stott says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God flipping the order. The good news that John Stott puts is that the essence of salvation is that in the coming of Jesus, God has substituted himself for man. In the garden, man asserted himself against God and put himself where only God deserves to be. But in the cross, God sacrificed himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is what we're going to see throughout this message is that this reversal that brought about sin is the very reversal that brought about salvation. So first observation that we've seen is that chapter 3 flips chapters 1 and 2 upside down. And the story of the garden that began in chapter 2 with God making a garden and then putting man in the garden And you see this dialogue between Satan and the serpent in the garden. Then right at the center, the sin happens. They eat of the fruit. Then there's a dialogue with God, and then they're out of the garden. You can kind of see chapters 2 and 3 inverted. And the very center of that inversion, the point that turns it all upside down, is when they sin. So outside the garden moving into the garden, moving very into the very center of the garden, to then moving further and further out. That's the way chapters 2 and 3 line up. And friends, this is not the way things were supposed to be. Women were not supposed to have intense pain in childbirth. Did you see that in verse 16? To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." I'm well aware this morning that I'm not qualified to speak about the pains of childbirth. In fact, I haven't even witnessed it firsthand, even though I have four children. My wife has had all four of our kids through C-section, so we've not really experienced labor together. I don't even have sympathy pains of labor. Even though I don't want to diminish what my wife went through, she had many painful surgeries to recover from, I don't think that's what this passage has in mind when it says, I will multiply your pain In childbearing, I think it has in mind the intense labor that women for centuries have had to endure without any modern medicine to relieve the pain. If any of you ladies have experienced that relief, you're not even feeling the full weight then of this curse. You know how sometimes women share labor stories about how bad their labors were, trade notes, compare. Mine was this long, mine was this bad. I wonder what our labor stories, if we compared ladies with Eve, could you imagine the shock that she must have gone through of not having heard any stories to swap growing up, not hearing any forewarning of how bad this would be and having no modern medicine to relieve this pain whatsoever, no even herbal remedies She had no idea what was coming when in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and she gave birth to Cain. Can you just imagine what she must have gone through? But God's word says it wasn't supposed to be this way. I know this may not be an earth-shattering truth, but... I think sometimes the struggle we have is that some of us are so accustomed to seeing pain and suffering that we just think it's normal. Like when I make this point, women, it's not supposed to be this painful. Maybe a little painful, but not that painful. Not 24-hour contractions that are ever-increasing scream at the top of your lungs painful. The worst pain imaginable kind of painful. But for centuries, for millenniums, we've seen this time and time again. We, we maybe have become numb. To, that's just what life's like. That's so normal. And that's why I want us to make the observation, no, it's not supposed to be that way. Every time a baby is born and women have these intense labor pains, it should be a reminder, no, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Am I right to say that some of us are so accustomed to pain and suffering that we're not realizing it wasn't supposed to be like this? Or have we so minimized by our modern sciences and medicines that we forgot how bad the curse of God's judgment really is? But it's not just the pain in childbirth. We see in verse 16 that Super aggressive women that don't ever want to submit to any authority is likely what's being described here about your desire will be for your husband, your desire to overtake him. In the same way, this parallels, if you read in chapter 4, you see that same phrase about sin overtaking Cain when he murders his brother. That's the phrase. Sin's desire. So your desire will be to overtake your husband, not submit, not respect authority. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be that women get real defensive when they hear the word submit. It's not an ugly idea. Submitting to God is what all of us do. Jesus submitting to the Father is what Christ has done. This is not a bad thing. When authority is good, the problem is, is the next phrase, and he shall rule over you. Too many times, men have not been good authority figures. And so men have been domineering, ruling husbands. It's not supposed to be that way either. Men aren't supposed to rule with an iron fist. They're not supposed to come home, kick up their legs on the couch and say, Woman, do my service. I'm home. It's time for you to work. I'm done working. Verse 16 makes clear domineering, ruling husbands is not the way it's supposed to be. Unsubmissive, bulking at every leadership in your life is not the way women are supposed to be. Derek Kinder said in his Genesis commentary. It's as if in Genesis 2, we see the vow to love and to cherish till death do us part is turned into desire and dominate. From love and to cherish, to desire and dominate. All domestic violence comes from this verse in verse 16. All abusive, overpowering husbands that become so normal, That women just sometimes get stuck in these marriages and in these situations like, oh, that's just the way it is. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's so, so sad to hear the lies of the world and be so accustomed to suffering that people stay stuck and don't get help because their manipulative, domineering husbands blame their wives when they blow up in anger and say, it was your fault. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. It's not the way marriage is supposed to be. Ladies, I hope all of you in this room know that. I hope that none of you are stuck in that. The reason, in part, that elders exist and churches exist is to be a family that helps you know this is not the way it's supposed to be. Then there's the curse that's given to man in verses 17 and following. He will experience pain and frustration in his work. Now, it's very important that you notice the way I said that. The curse is not work. Work was given in chapter 2. Work is good. Work is a, a blessing. It is a good gift from God that we would work. What's cursed here is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat all the days of your life. You know why that's important to realize that distinction? Laziness is not the way it's supposed to be. Yes work will be frustrating and toilsome because of our sin. But that frustration shouldn't lead us to be like, "Ah, oh, I just give up. Who cares? It's not going to work anymore." Nope. It's not supposed to be that way either. We are supposed to work hard. What the curse brought was hard work, ridiculously hard work. So catch that. We are supposed to work hard. It's just that the work was not supposed to be this frustratingly hard. There's certainly some sort of play on words throughout chapters 2 and 3 that we don't really see here in English. The Hebrew word for man that's used throughout here is Adam. The Hebrew word for ground is the Adama. So the ground that's cursed is the Adama. Now follow this train of thought. In chapter 2, Adam. The Adam, the man, was made from the Adama. He was made from the ground. God formed him from the ground. Play on words about how he was made. Then he was to work the Adama, work the ground, cultivate the ground. And then, because of his sin, the Adama is cursed because the Adam did not protect the ground and the garden. And as a result, he will be returned back to the dust of the Adama. All through chapter 2 and 3, if you read it in Hebrew, you just see the play on words and the connection of the relationship between the ground and the man, and the ground and the man. As one author put it very simply, the Adama, the ground, it is Adam's cradle where he was born. It is his home where he was to work and live. And it was his grave that he will one day go. His cradle, his home, and his grave. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. It wasn't supposed to be his grave. The ground was not supposed to be cursed and so frustrating. Have you guys ever experienced work as a blessing where you've done a job and it's gone smoothly and after you're done, you thought, man, this is good. I'm enjoying the process and then the completion and you step back and you're just, I could do this every day. I enjoyed all of it. Now, if you're stuck at a job where you're like, I don't ever enjoy my job and step back and be like, oh, this." At least you can appreciate that would be nice, though, wouldn't it? I can remember a time when I was working in my master's degree. I had a paper to write. It was a big paper, it was a paper that was a large portion of my grade for that semester. It's a theological paper. I was writing and studying the Bible. And by God's grace, I love to study the Bible and write papers or sermons. And so I enjoy the process. I enjoy getting into it. And if that's not been obvious, then you've been sleeping. This is a joy to me. I enjoy the work and the labor of getting into books and research and writing and editing and rewriting. And so I did. And I finished the paper and I stepped back and I'm like, I'm proud of this. This is good. I enjoy the process. I enjoy the completion of it. I should get a good grade on this paper. And then I did something to my computer, and it deleted it. And I never got it back. Do you know what that is, my friends? That is a modern illustration of toilsome work. Frustrating work. Thorns and thistles in your computer. I was so angry. I enjoyed the work, I really did, but I hated the thought of having to do it all over again and cram it all in right before it was due. It was not the same paper. It was not as good as it once was. I wanted to literally throw the computer across the room. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Have we not all experienced the toilsome frustration of our labors. Whether it's with computers, working with our hands, working in the fields or the gardens. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And I don't know about you, but I find that very comforting when those moments happen. No, this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way God designed the world to be. This earth would be a terrible place to live in if that was the norm. That was just the way life was. Now, in those moments, we should be reminded that this is because of the curse. The world is upside down. It's not ordered the way God made it to be. Can you just imagine what it would be like if you didn't have this foundation in your understanding of the world? Let's imagine you don't believe in the Bible and you're going to give counsel to somebody who is under the toil of these curses, whether it's the pain, the physical pain, whether it's the frustration of work. And you have to sit down in front of somebody and tell them, look, that's just the way things are. Let's just make the most of it. Your husband, he's probably not going to change. He's just going to continue to rule and domineer over you. There's no hope for people to change. Let's just figure out how to make the best of it. Do you see how different that sounds than this? We as a church have good news. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. And God is and has done something about it. And people do change and the world will change and there is hope for you. I could never be a pastor if I didn't have this hope. I would have nothing to offer you if all I had to say was, let's just make the best of it. What's the point? You're all just going to die? Return to the ground? Suffering's never going to be over? It's just only going to get worse? That's why we need Christmas. That's why we need the birth of Jesus and the reverse of the curse. That's the first observation, is that the world was not meant to be this way, and God is and has done something about it, and that's why Christmas is here. That's why we celebrate it. Second observation. When you sin, you learn the deceptive nature of sin, and you start to say to yourself, wait, that's not the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be better than that. So the point is the same. I want to use that same phrase. That's not the way it was supposed to be, but from a very different perspective. I want you to think about what happens the moments after you realize you have sinned, and the regret, and the disappointment, and the emptiness that you feel when you thought, I thought it was going to be so much better than this, and that's all it was? It promised something so much more. That's not the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be something more fulfilling and satisfying. Not this. This is what we learn as we go through Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve and the serpent all feel this disappointment and i got to think if they didn't say it they were thinking it no no this isn't this isn't what we hoped for this isn't what we signed up for with this choice to sin we were thinking it was going to do this do you know that feeling i got to think all of us in this room have had that feeling sin has laid out before you some wonderful buffet oh yeah this is going to be good and then you eat and all of it tastes terrible looked good, and gave you food poisoning, and you regretted it every single day afterwards. If you haven't had that feeling, I'd encourage you to go to Disney World, (laughs) ride It's a Small World, and wait for an hour to get on the boat. That's kind of what it's like. Now, that's a silly illustration, because at the end of that, you're like, I thought it was going to be a whole lot better than that. More seriously, though, Ralph Venning is a Puritan that wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. He gets it right when he says, sin says this. Oh, I promise you, you will gain by it. You will profit so much, so much pleasure and so much honor. And Ralph Venning says, but these precious substances that sin promises always end in a pernicious shadow. The spoils we get by choosing sin only spoil us. Sin makes promises like a god, but it pays us like a devil. Sin's performance is altogether contrary to its promise. Its promises are gold, but it pays you garbage. If anyone wants to have the true misery in life, then listen to sin's false promises. This is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. You'll be like God. The serpent said to the woman, you'll be more like God. You'll know good and evil. He's trying to keep something from you. You're going to get something. You're going to gain. You see the promise being offered out to Eve in that conversation with the serpent? And the woman looks at the fruit and it says in the scripture, She saw that it was pleasing to the eye, it was delightful for food, and she thought it might make her wiser. And what did she really get? She became less like God. Do you see how it's flipped on its head? The very promise, you'll be like God. Well, she already was like God. She wasn't God. She was made in the image of God to reflect the character of God's ruling and dominion. She was made like him, but as choosing to eat that fruit and gain more, more like God, she became less like God. And so did Adam. And they crushed the image of God from that point on. The image of God, we said earlier, is like a mirror, It reflects the beauty of God's ruling and his character, and we are to reflect to the world that character. And so now we look to the world in our sin like a carnival mirror where it's all distorted. You've been before the carnival mirrors, and you've got a real long head, your legs are 10 times longer. It's distorted image. That's what sin has done to the image of God. You want to be more like God? Then choose to obey God, not disobey God. By choosing to disobey God, we further break and fracture the image. So if you don't want to think of a carnival mirror, think of another hammer blowing at the mirror and just cracking it all over the place. You can still see the image, but it's all cracked and messed up. That's what sin does to our image that we're to reflect the glory of God's character. Shattered mirrors. Consider the way the woman who was supposed to be a helper for her husband became the leader in the garden and led the man astray. What did she get? The exact opposite. You want to be a leader? Now you're going to get a husband who rules, domineers. Sin does the exact opposite of what you hoped it would do. But I want to assert my authority over the man. Now he is going to rule with force over you. Not because that's the way it's supposed to be, but because that's what sin does. Didn't man and woman see something that was pleasurable, a delight to the eyes, something that seemed good to eat. Oh, I want this. This is going to taste good. This is going to feel good. And what did they get? Pain. I will increase your pain in childbearing. In pain, you will eat. Reach out for pleasure and take sin's fruit. You think you're going to get more pleasure, and the result is increased pain. And then there's the serpent. What's the serpent doing? He's trying to put God at odds with man. Put man at odds with God, and he's trying to turn Eve and then consequently Adam to his team. Let's, Let's not listen and obey the voice of God. Let's question the goodness of God's word. Did God really say are you sure he's not holding back from you? Is this God really good? That's what the serpent's doing. And what did the serpent get? By trying to lead them astray, the deceiver was deceived himself. Instead of humans being at odds with God, the text says, I will put humans at odds with you, serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The crushing head of the serpent will come because of Satan's attempt to try and put man against God. So now it will be through the seed of the woman that a man, did you notice the way it says seed? And then it says he in the singular. There will be one who comes and he will bruise, and literally here it's crush your head. Now, all next week, we're just going to look at that one verse on Christmas morning and see the story of this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But for now, we need to realize that God has promised in this curse the crushing of evil and the crushing of Satan. As John Piper has once said, the acts of Satan are his own suicide. Think about that for a moment. Satan is trying to win victory over God, but instead his result is his own death. And all through the scriptures, that's what we'll see next week. All the way to the betrayal of Judas, Satan led Judas to to the very crushing of Jesus over the serpent. Which leads us to our last and final observation. This crushing of the serpent and this victory for all of us comes in such a way that sin's reversal leads many people to say, wait, that's not the way it was supposed to be. That's not what we were expecting. That's not what we were looking for. That's not the kind of ruler that we were longing for. Do you see this coming of that he who will crush the serpent's head finds its fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus is born, everything about his birth leads people to say, no, 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 that's not the way a ruler looks. That's not what a king looks like. Kings are born in palaces. This king was born not in the city of Jerusalem, but in little tiny town of Bethlehem. He wasn't placed in a golden wonderfully soft cushy cradle he was placed in a manger he was born by a virgin into poverty do you see how from the very beginning of the life of jesus no no that's that's not the way it's supposed to be that's because he has to reverse the curse of all that was not supposed to be and from the very beginning he takes that on himself He takes on the curse and the pain. He takes on the suffering and the judgment. Throughout his life, his whole ministry is a whole slew of events that one after another leave people. No, no, that's not what we were expecting or looking for in the Messiah. He said, blessed are those who are meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who are persecuted. His whole kingdom is one of unexpected, wait, that's not the way it's supposed to work. The rich overtake the poor. The proud and the strong overtake the weak. But the ministry and the message of Jesus flips this world upside down on its head because everything about his coming, his life, his teaching, and then Eventually, his death is reversing this curse in this world of, that's not what it's supposed to be like. Did he not touch the unclaimed people that he was not supposed to touch? Did he hang out with the tax collectors and the sinners, and he was accused of being called a drunkard and a glutton? Wasn't he supposed to fast twice a week like all the other Jews and religious leaders? Wasn't he supposed to ride in on Jerusalem with the triumphant white horse, but instead came on a little donkey. And so they rejected him. They didn't just get upset and be like, no, that's not the right way it's supposed to be. No, they rejected him. They hated him. They despised him. And by doing so, they put him on a cross where the ultimate sign of the reverse of the curse came. The scriptures even say later in Galatians chapter 3, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so Jesus Christ, the God-man, hangs on a tree naked, wearing a crown of what? Why do you think it's thorns and thistles? Because he's taking the curse on his head. Kings are normally exalted to high places above everyone else with crowns of gold, thrones that make you look in awe, not shudder in disgust, but that's the way Jesus came. He was high and lifted on a cross, bloody, beaten, and bruised, because it says in Genesis 3.15, you will bruise his heels. He will take the bite from the snake. It will lead to his death. But you realize that that bite, that death blow from the serpent will lead to the crushing of the serpent's head forever. He killed death by death. And that's why he came not to be served, but to serve. And you know what that should leave us all doing as we sit as we gaze, as we reflect on the cross of Jesus, there's only one last thing for us to think and say. It's not the way it was supposed to be. That was my sin. That was my crown. That was my cross. He was the innocent, undeserving sheep led to the slaughter for my sin. That's it's not the way it was supposed to be. When you think about all of Jesus' birth, life, and death, you should see your sin, your cross, and there should be outrage within you. No. You should have never done that to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you thanks for this hopeful word. How else do we make sense of the suffering and the pain, the violence, the marriage conflicts, the frustration of our work? If your word doesn't declare and announce and awaken for us, that's not the way I designed it. Thank you for that helpful reorientation. But more than that, more than opening up our eyes to the deceitfulness of sin and more than setting us straight about the world and the way it's supposed to be, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for allowing this man to come and receive The pain and suffering far greater than any of us have ever experienced. All at once, as he is exiled out of your presence, as he is rejected, as he has that crown of thorns on his head, and as he experiences the abandonment and loneliness of the cross, naked and ashamed. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas thank you that no matter what we're facing this morning, no matter what pain and suffering, no matter what issues that we're going through, we have hope this morning. We have a new story to tell. And I pray that you will help give us the boldness and the courage to believe it and tell it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.